Christmas. Um, as Stephen said, I'm Matt Owens. I'm pastor of Christ the Redeemer, Quincy, a church plant of Christ the King Presbyterian. There was already a Christ the King Presbyterian in Quincy, as some of you know. It's a Brazilian church, a Brazilian PCA church that's in Quincy. I don't speak Portuguese, so we're planting an English-speaking church called Christ the Redeemer. Um, we right now are meeting, um, and, and I've been here several times before. I think the first interaction that I had with your church was leading uh, the youth retreat. That was about five years ago when I was the assistant pastor at Christ the King Somerville. Um, and then uh, last time I came, I think we had moved to Quincy, uh, but didn't really have any people in our church yet. Um, I think it was, it was me and my wife and my son. So by God's grace, he's provided uh, people and a place to meet. We're now having monthly preview services uh, once a month and um, leading towards, uh, kind of in preparation for our weekly, uh, our launch of weekly worship, which will be this March. So it's an exciting time for us. We really appreciate your prayers. And as Stephen indicated, uh, we really appreciate your financial partnership as well. Um, so as Stephen mentioned also, uh, I've been kind of getting over a cold. I am remarkably miraculously uh, better than yesterday, if you can believe it. But you'll still hear a little bit uh, in my voice. I may cough from time to time. I may stop to uh, pop a cough drop, and I may be drinking some water. Uh, so forgive me for that. But um, nonetheless, very glad to be here uh, and to share in God's word with you this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, please find John chapter 1. This passage uh, really deserves a whole sermon series. There's so much packed into these verses. Uh, in fact, one Bible scholar actually argues that the rest of John's gospel is just an expansion of the themes that we see in the prologue in these first 18 verses. Um, but today, I just, I just want to look at a few verses. Uh, we're going to read John 1, 1 through 3, and then I'm going to read verse 14. John chapter 1. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Will you join me in prayer? Father, these things are uh, wonderful. They are too wonderful, uh, really, for our comprehension. But I pray, Lord, um, as we are still here in the Christmas season, that we would marvel anew at your coming among us, uh, at your sacrificial love for us, at the wonders of your love. Lord, and would you write these things on our hearts, uh, that we might be a people who show this light, this grace, this truth, uh, to the people and the places that you have called us to. We ask it 
In Jesus' name, amen. The great early 20th century Austrian-born philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, who is famous for challenging the limits of language. Uh, Wittgenstein says that when it comes to the ultimate questions about life, uh, language just fails us. Wittgenstein once scribbled in his notebook this sentence, the solution to the riddle of life in space and time must come from beyond space and time. The solution to the riddle of life in space and time must come from beyond space and time. This, the Christian faith says, is exactly what has happened in the person Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. God spoke into the world not merely in words, but by the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Coming from beyond space and time to show us what life in space and time is really all about. It boggles the mind. Dorothy Sayers, the British author, playwright, once wrote, from the beginning of time until now, it, the the incarnation of Jesus, is the only thing which has ever really happened. I love that. She goes on to say, we may call this doctrine exhilarating or devastating. We may call it revelation or rubbish. But if we call it dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? My claim this morning, the claim of our passage, is that the story of Jesus Christ, the story that the Bible tells from start to finish, is the greatest story ever told. And not only that, but it's a true story. And not only that, but it impacts everything about our lives here and now. And so I want to look at the story in three phases. This is my outline. I'm going to look first at in the beginning. Second, there and then. Third, here and now. In the beginning, there and then, here and now. First, in the beginning. That's where John begins. Verse 1, in the beginning. It's the same way that the Bible begins. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. For John to begin with the same phrase shows that he probably had a sense that he was not just writing some random account, that he was actually writing scripture as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. Of the other Gospels, one begins with the start of Jesus' public ministry, one with the story of his birth. Matthew goes all the way back to Abraham and gives Jesus' genealogy. But John goes back to the very beginning, back before even the beginning of Genesis. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, which we'll come back to. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now John uh, doesn't actually use the name Jesus Christ until all the way down in verse 17. But before he identifies who the Word is, He gives these impressive credentials. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. First, he makes a distinction between God and the Word. And then, the Word was God. Then he removes that distinction. Confusing? 
Well, the Bible often speaks of God in this way, speaks of God as plural, and then turns around and affirms that God is one. This is the mystery of the Trinity. One God, three persons, equal in power and glory, of the same substance, but also distinct and unique as beings. The most uh, difficult question when I was on the floor of uh, presbytery for my ordination exam several years ago, I was ex ex asked to explain the tr how I would explain the Trinity to someone on the street, someone who presumably was not a Christian. Uh, and you realize when you try to answer that just how difficult the Trinity is to explain and probably how an unfair question it was. Uh, it's also because, uh, we have to be honest, we can't really wrap our minds around the Trinity. But if we believe there is a God whose ways are high above ours, why should we be arrogant enough to think that we could understand everything about him? It's a mystery. I think that's what I'd say now if someone asked me on the street. And so this word was both there with God in the beginning, and the word was God. This preposition that's translated with is not the usual Greek preposition uh, translated with. The prep this preposition is usually translated to or toward or even facing or face to face. It's giving us a picture of the intimacy between the Father and the Son. Jesus prays in John 17 and talks about the love that existed between God the Father and God the Son before creation. Christianity teaches that creation did not come about out of some conflict or chaos, nor did God create out of a need for love, as if he was lonely and he needed someone to love him. God had everything he needed. But that love that existed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was so wonderful that it overflowed. It had to be shared, had to be given an object. And amazingly, we are that object. Verses 2 and 3, not only was the Word there in the beginning, all things were made through him, through the Word, and without him was not anything made that was made. We heard uh, something similar when Stephen read uh, Colossians chapter 1, which I don't think was planned. I think you've been reading through Colossians, but it, it, per it perfectly fits this passage. Now up to this point, John has been vague enough so that any Jewish or Greek reader could still agree with him. John, beginning his gospel with this concept of the logos, is, is brilliant. It's too brilliant for a poor Galilean fisherman like John, and this is evidence that he's, it was divinely inspired. He takes the idea of the logos, which is this loaded concept in both Greek thought and in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and he makes this profound statement that captures everyone's attention. Because for the Greek, especially in the philosophical tradition of Stoicism, the Logos was understood as the divine harmony by which all things exist and the essence of every human soul. <coughs> as far as the Stoic was concerned, there was no other God other than the Logos. Uh, the French philosopher Luc Ferry uh, has written about this in his book, uh, A Brief History of Thought. Ferry's not a, 
a believer, but he writes this uh, book on the history of philosophy in which he has this really interesting chapter called The Victory of Christianity. And he especially looks at this concept of the logos and how uh, Christianity appropriated this. He writes, the logos was the rational, therefore true, therefore beautiful order of the universe, the harmonious force behind all things that ordered all things. But, he says, it was a distant, impersonal force. And so the Greek, especially the Stoic, is nodding along with what John is saying in the first three verses. And also, any Jew who knew their scriptures would affirm that God created all things by his word. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Even when John personifies the word in verse 2, calling him he who was from the beginning, that's really not uh, totally unprecedented in the Old Testament. When the Lord revealed his will to the prophets, uh, we often read, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah or Jeremiah or whoever. Psalm 107, the word of the Lord went out and healed them and delivered them from their distress. That personification of the word of the Lord. So in the first few verses, John's Greek and Jewish audience are both nodding along. But then he drops this bomb in verse 14. And the word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's Eugene Peterson's message paraphrase of verse 14. Let's look next at there and then. And by that I mean a particular time and place in human history. You can almost imagine some of John's audience folding their arms and shaking their heads as he makes this claim. That which was from the beginning, who created the universe and in whom all things held together, took on flesh. And the word flesh is specifically chosen. He doesn't use the word uh, for man or body. He uses the word flesh, which indicates something weak and impermanent, as in all flesh is grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. He uses the word flesh to say that the God of the universe became exactly as we are. The Lagos, God himself, became a person. This was unthinkable to the Greek. Luke Ferry again writes that the universal cosmic order be identified with a single, puny individual, whatever his credentials, was insanity to the Greek mind. The God of the universe, as the poet Scott Cairns has written, cannot be comprehended, but in Jesus Christ, he can be touched. The solution to the riddle of life in space and time enters into space and time, unthinkably, as a human baby. This is the scandal and the wonder of the incarnation. Incarnate meaning in the flesh, that God became human flesh as a weak and vulnerable baby. Frederick Buechner writes, until we have taken the idea of the God-man seriously enough to be scandalized by it, we have not taken it as seriously as it demands to be taken. 
Both the Greek and the Jew would have been scandalized by this. For the Jew, what John is saying here is that each and every word of the Lord, each message that came through the Old Testament prophets that revealed something of who God is, something of his character, each word was like a piece of the puzzle. Every time they got some new information from the prophets about who God was, it was like a piece of the puzzle, but they couldn't put the puzzle together because they didn't have a picture of what the puzzle was supposed to look like. But when the word became flesh, then the face of Jesus Christ was the picture that they had been building towards all along. He is the full revelation of who God is, the image of the invisible God, the ultimate and final word from God. John writes in verse 18, no one's ever seen God. Moses was told by the Lord, no one can see my face and live. But the one and only God who is at the Father's side, this more literally, who is at the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. He has exegeted him. That's the root word there. He has revealed, unveiled, made him known, exegeted him. When we couldn't see his face, God in his grace came down, accommodated himself, taking on our flesh so that we could see who he is. I was reading of uh, the statue of Admiral Horatio Nelson uh, in Trafalgar Square in London. Uh, some of you have probably been there. The statue stands on a co- uh, this imposing column. It's about 150 feet high in the air. But at that height, no one can actually see what the admiral looked like. And so a few years back, uh, there was a group of people who decided to recreate an exact replica of the statue at ground level. We can't ascend to God, but in his grace, to show us his face, he came down to us. And what did we see in the face of Jesus Christ? Verse 14, John says, we have seen his glory. Glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now we live in a society that oscillates between wanting grace and wanting truth. On the one hand, people often talk about not judging others, forgiving others. But we see all the time that when someone does something that uh, in the court of public opinion is viewed as so unforgivable that even those who show them grace are condemned. And so we often want grace for ourselves and truth for others. Well, here we see that Jesus is not one or the other. He's not half full of grace and half full of truth. He reveals a God who is 100% grace and 100% truth. And this alludes to a tension that exists throughout the Old Testament. The Lord declares himself gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love on the one hand, but also that he's a God of justice. He cannot give a free pass to those 
who are guilty of injustice or oppression or idolatry. But how can he be both grace and truth? We have seen his glory, God, or John says, glory of the only Son of the Father. I preached last month on Abraham being called to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. There's maybe no story in the Old Testament that points uh, more powerfully to the cross, uh, that reveals the heart of the Father and the submission of the Son. And that language, one and only Son, is repeated throughout that story in Genesis 22. Well, John here uses the same language for Jesus, and it's used throughout the New Testament. Isaac's glory was found in his submission to, his trust of, his father. So where is John saying that we have seen Jesus' glory? Jesus' glory is also found in his submission to his father. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus speaks of the hour in which he will be glorified. And by this, he means the hour of his crucifixion. His submission to his father's will in love. And so in light of the incarnation, when we talk about God's greatness, his glory, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer has written, we must begin not with his omniscience and his omnipresence, but with his cradle and his cross. Now many would say, many different religions, uh, different philosophies, different individuals, no, it can't be. God is too great to become a human being. But the claim of the New Testament is that the Lord's greatness is found precisely in his becoming a human. That he became a weak and helpless vulnerable human baby. Christianity is unique in teaching that God does not remain far off, an impersonal concept, distant from his creation, as if touching it would make him dirty. Rather, he comes into his creation, dignifying it and purifying it. We get a picture of this purification in Matthew 8 when a leper kneels before Jesus and says, Lord, if you will, make me clean. And Jesus says, I will be clean. And what does Jesus do? He reaches out his hand and he touches him. <coughs> no one touched lepers. It's a very contagious disease. But Jesus does. And what happens? His purity overcomes the disease. God comes down into our world. His purity overcomes our uncleanness. His light overcomes our darkness. Our God does not remain far off. He gets down and dirty, entering into all the sadness and suffering, embracing it, loving it, rescuing it. You often hear how all the major world religions are really the same. But with all due respect, there is no other religion or worldview or philosophical tradition that claims anything like the Incarnation. 
Other religions, generally speaking, have a prophet or a deity who from some, some high place, some distant mountain, instructs people how to live, how to achieve eternal life, ultimately how to rescue yourself. Only Christianity says that God himself comes down into the world, into the dark, dirty, broken places of his creation that have been ruined by human rebellion. Not primarily to give instructions, but to give us life, eternal life. And he does this by giving his own life. It's common for, for modern people to envision salvation as a mountain, and there are many paths on the mountain that lead to God. Have you heard this? It appears on the surface to be a humble approach to thinking about salvation, but it raises some questions. Like, who is describing the mountain of salvation? And how is it that they have a bird's eye view of it while everyone else is apparently on a path? Because the Bible actually describes a different mountain. One that as you begin to ascend, you come to a sheer rock face that no one is able to climb. I think of, of Psalm 24. Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? And the answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, none of us. But there was one who did ascend the hill of the Lord, who did have clean hands and a pure heart. He was completely without sin. And he ascended the hill not for the sake of his salvation, but for the sake of ours. For God himself in the person of Jesus Christ willingly took on human flesh, came into the valley of the shadow of death, and having made himself nothing, he became obedient to death for what awaited him at the top of the hill that he ascended was a cross. In this, we have seen his glory. The glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth meet and are fully demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. God is true to justice because he himself paid the cost of our sins. And thus God is more gracious than we ever could have imagined. This is both the wonder and the scandal of the cross. The only way for us to ascend the mountain was to have someone come down. That was a dramatic effect that was unintended. The only way for us to ascend the mountain was to have someone come down and rescue us. And the wonder of the cross is that he came all the way down. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Miracles, the Christian story is a story of God descending to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being, into time and space, down into humanity, down into the nine months which precede human birth, going lower still into being a corpse, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world up with him. 
He comes down to bring us up with him in his resurrection, where once again we see his glory. As John writes in this program, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. The darkness thought it had won for three days, but it did not succeed in snuffing out the light. We are rescued here and now by what happened, by what Jesus did there and then. To say it another way, what took place in that stable, on that cross, and in that empty tomb has everything to do with us here and now. So let's look at, at my third and final point here and now. <laughs> um, admittedly, I began this sermon abstractly, quoting philosophers. But the whole point of this passage is that God does not remain in the abstract. The good news of God coming down has concrete applications for us here and now. You know, there's so many more, but I just want to give three applications in closing. First, and I've already alluded to this, Jesus, the one in whose name you pray, knows what it is to be human. A couple of weeks ago, as I was working on this sermon, uh, I heard a noise in the monitor. My uh, two-year-old son, Liam, was upstairs asleep. I would soon discover that the noise was a, uh, a retching noise. Liam had thrown up in his crib all over himself. And my immediate thought, because of where my mind was, because I was working on this sermon, was this is what it means to be human. God himself was human. Jesus was a baby. He was a toddler. And I don't mean this to be sacrilegious or anything, but he probably threw up on himself because that's what normal toddlers do. I mean this to say whatever you're going through, physically, emotionally, psychologically, whatever struggle or sickness or sadness, temptation, whatever unfulfilled longing or, or feeling of betrayal, Jesus has experienced and endured all of what it means to be human. The writer of Hebrews reminds us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And he concludes, because Jesus succeeded where we failed, we are to come boldly to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and help in our time of need. Second application <coughs> is that we are called to follow this same pattern of Jesus coming down, getting low, serving, sacrificing ourselves for the sake of others. We can't love people well when we think that we're above them. So if we're going to love and serve others as God is calling us and leading us to do, we need to get low to humbly serve others. Then we are demonstrating to others the sacrificial love of the one who got low to wash the feet of his 
disciples, those he knew in a matter of hours would run away and deny and betray him. He was willing to get low, to die for such as these. Paul writes in Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't take advantage of his position, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God has raised him up and given him the name that is above every other name, that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Third, don't let this uh, Christmas season end and the new year begin without seeing and savoring, without pausing to dwell on the wonder of what God has done the wonder of the incarnation, the wonder of Jesus coming down. If you've been uh, too busy this Christmas to pause and reflect on the sacrificial love of the incarnation and the cross, then at least dwell on it and thank God for it as we take the supper in a few moments. But I would challenge you to, to take some time Uh, to reflect on the Christmas story and the gospel story regularly throughout uh, your days. Reflect on what God has done for you, on the greatest story ever told, the true story of the world, the only thing that's ever really happened. To that end, I want to close with an illustration uh, from a book called Mortal Lessons by Dr. Richard Seltzer, a medical doctor, in New Haven, Connecticut. (coughs) And in this story, the wife uh, represents the fallen human race and the husband represents what God has done for us in Christ. He writes, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be like this from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they? I ask myself. He and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously, greedily. The young woman speaks, will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say it, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand, and I lower my gaze. One is not so bold in an encounter with a god. That's lowercase g, god. Unmindful of me, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I'm so close, 
I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we were yet sinners, God became like us in every way except sin, so that we might be raised to be like him, so that we might be with him. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, would we, uh, would we experience anew the wonders of your love for us as we come to your table? Uh, would we see Jesus uh, and how he has given himself for us? Uh, what that meant for him, what that means for us, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to the Lord's table, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We celebrate that God has become flesh and blood. Not only that he became flesh and blood, but that he gave his flesh and blood for us. And as we uh, partake of his sacrifice, the Holy Spirit uses these common elements to nourish our faith, to send us out into uh, this world of sadness and suffering that we might bring hope and light and comfort to those who, who so desperately need it. And so if you have uh, place your faith in Christ. This is uh, really not a meal that's based on what we've done. It's based entirely on what he's done. And so if you are somebody that has placed your faith in what Jesus has done uh, for you in his life, death, and resurrection, uh, and you have made that public through uh, baptism in a church that believes the same gospel, then you are, are warmly welcome to partake in this supper. Uh, if that's not you, if you're not sure what you think about these things, or you're sure that you don't believe, um, I think I could speak for myself and the, and the elders and the entire church. We're very glad that you're here. The most appropriate thing for you to do during this time is to let these elements pass you by. Uh, this is for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ uh, and are, are called the body of Christ. Um, And so our Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.